Good morning. morning. Let's start with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, what a privilege to call you our Father. And we we love you so much, and we thank you for this opportunity to study and share. And we ask that your Spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, bring us closer to you every day, and help us to be lights in this world for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we are doing Lesson 8 in the book of Revelation, and the title is Satan, a Defeated Enemy. And as we get into the lesson, I just want to remind you a couple things as we look at Revelation. Number one, Revelation is highly symbolic, and every person is to be fully persuaded in their own minds. And and you don't have to interpret every detail of Revelation correctly in order to be saved. There'll be many people who are saved because salvation is found in a trust relation with Jesus Christ. When you open the heart, the Spirit comes in and transforms your inner person from self-centeredness to other-centeredness and love. And you can be that other person and still not know every detail of every symbol. Okay, so let, let's not make this an issue of salvation and get all bent out of shape and we see things differently. It's okay, we can see things differently. So, but I can tell you a general rule that I have for interpreting the symbols, and this is my, my, my baseline rule, no interpretation should ever be accepted that represents God in character than Jesus revealed him to be. Or in which has God violating his own design laws. Law of liberty. Law of love. If we interpret symbols that put God in a character that makes him look more like Satan, a mean, angry, wrathful deity who uses his power to torture and kill, then we should have some confidence. That's a wrong interpretation. We need to have a better understanding of what the symbols are meaning because God is always love, and he always looks like Jesus in character. He never violates his own laws or design protocols for life. So that's my general rule. Memory text for this week, Revelation twelve eleven. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Is the blood of the Lamb literal or metaphorical? Yeah, it's not about red corpuscles, right? So does the blood stand for life or death or both? What's the symbol? The, the, The penal view, this is the death penalty. The blood stands for the death penalty that was paid. That's what the penal view sees. But what's Leviticus actually say? The death is in the blood? The life is in the blood is what Leviticus says. No, I believe it stands primarily for the life of Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Christ, the perfect human life that he developed through his sacrificial death, destroying the temptation. Remember in Gethsemane, Father, be possible. He's anguishing. He's having huge, powerful emotions that are tempting him to, to not go through the cross. Act in self-interest, save self, that desire, that drive. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, the Scripture says. But he did not give in to the temptation. He, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend, chose to love others more than self. Thus, in his humanity, he establishes a perfect righteous character. So, how is the blood of the Lamb related to overcoming the devil? And the blood also then can represent the righteous character and the truth about the righteous character that we see in his righteous character. So how is the blood of the Lamb overcome? We partake of the flesh and blood. You know the metaphors? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, John 6. This is a metaphor. It's not cannibalism. And that symbolism was transferred to another set of symbols. This bread is my body, my flesh. This wine is my blood. Okay, so... Flesh and blood got transferred to bread and wine as symbols. And when you partake of a piece of bread or a piece of flesh and you actually eat it physically, it gets broken down into molecules that get assimilated into your body and become building blocks of your physical body. When you partake of the Word made flesh, Jesus is the Word made flesh, you're partaking of the truth about God that Jesus revealed, and those truths become ideas, concepts, become building blocks of frameworks, schemas, perceptions, and ultimately become building blocks of your individuality and character. The truth shall set you free. And you're one to trust, and as you open your heart and trust, then we partake of the wine or the blood, which is his life. We get a new heart. The Spirit comes in, and we get new motives. What is the word of their testimony? So they overcame by the blood, the truth about Christ that they've accepted, that's been internalized, and they've got new hearts and right spirits. That's part of it. But what's the word of their testimony? What's that represent? Their experience. Their experience. How they live. Sample to others. And what would the word of their testimony be? Living out life in love. Living out life in love. That's right. It's no longer I that live, but 
Christ lives in me, so the word of their testimony, living out life in love, uh, as the Father sent me, so send I you, the word of their testimony is ultimately testifying about who? Christ, and how Christ healed them. About how Christ healed them, which is then giving witness to the character of Christ. So would they even, could you even say they're giving the same testimony then about God that Jesus gave? What is revealed by, they did not love their life so much as a shrink from death, unquote. That's a quote from the text. What, is that, what does that tell you? If you think through the description of what that means. Yes, what's the prime drive in the world that the whole world says is natural and healthy? Survival of the fittest. Okay? That me first. If it comes down to it, you know, the strong survive uh, by killing the weak. That's the infection of selfishness. But these people did not love their life so much as a shrink. They're not afraid to die. So if we put this, um, they've had a, a change of heart, healed characters, taking out the damage of sin, restoring the perfection of Christ, taking out the heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh, writing the law on the heart and mind, circumcision of the heart by this. We see the metaphors of Scripture? This is also called setting things right that were wrong. And in, in a Latin word for setting things right, justification. Justification is about setting the heart right. Sunday's lesson, by the way, is any of that transformation possible from your human willpower and human effort alone? No, No, it is not. Let's be clear on that. So I'm not teaching anything about you working and somehow coming up with a remedy to cure yourself. Not at all. This is a gift of God, but we participate and we cooperate by the choices we make in the healing process. Sunday's uh, lesson, Revelation 12, 1 through 5, this is from the NIV, and it says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. uh, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head, on, on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman and was about to, was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. What does the woman represent in this case? God's people. You can call it the church, but these are the people of God. Yeah. So the church of the day. What is represented by the sun and moon? The sun represents the glory of God's character, the righteousness of Christ. But the moon has a couple of possible interpretations. Some interpret the moon to be the Old Testament, which through all of its symbols reflected or dimly gave insight into the character of God and his plan of salvation and the and so forth that was not nearly as bright as the sun, S-O-N, who would be the true revelation of the righteous. So some interpret it as the Old Testament upon which the woman, the, the Old Testament church, was standing. But others interpret the moon as the promises of God, that the woman or the church stands on the promises of God and they get that from Psalms 89, 35 through 37, which says, uh, and it's speaking in, the, in that psalm specifically of a descendant of David who will rule and will be an eternal throne that never is overthrown. So it's speaking clear in the psalm about the descendant of David who will rule. And it says, For once for all I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like, like, a, like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. So some suggest that the moon that she stands on is the promise of God that, doesn't, that, that is faithful and reliable like the moon. So what do the, what do the crowns of, of 12 stars represent? The woman is a crown, 12 stars. Apostles uh, uh, becoming the, the, the patriarchs, the tri- patriarchs and the, and the good holy people out of the 12 tribes, from the, from the 12 tribes. What is symbolized by the pregnancy about to give birth and the child that was born? 
The incarnation of Christ. Who is the red dragon? What is symbolized by the seven heads and ten horns? Yes, you have a comment. Um, The pregnancy can be also the entire movement. When Christ came, he said, he was talking about the kingdom is here. You know, and so yes, Christ is the child, but also that whole movement in which the whole body of Christ was getting ready for the coming of Christ. Okay, yes. So the pregnancy portion would be the preparation portion that was leading up to, and then the child, of course, is Christ. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, sure. The be- uh, So the, the uh, seven heads and ten horns, what do they represent? Did you notice that the beast in Revelation 13, so the dragon has uh, as a beast has seven heads and ten horns. The beast of Revelation 13 has seven heads and ten horns. But did you notice that the dragon has crowns on the seven heads, where the beast in Revelation has crowns on the ten horns? They both have seven heads, ten horns, but the crowns are on the heads of the dragon, where the crowns are on the horns of the beast. What do you think that means? And by the way, the, 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 ground, the crown here, I believe, really means um, like diadem, power, authority. There's another crown, um, Stephanos in the Greek, which means the crown of victory. That's not the crown these guys are wearing. Yes? I've always been told that those are uh, secular governments of the world that the devil's controlling. Which ones? The heads or the horns or both? The heads. The heads. Secular governance. That's a common thing that we're told. Yes, thank you for that. Other thoughts? Well, seven in Bible, look at the number, seven and ten. Does that give you a clue? Does seven typically refer to secular things or or sacred things? Does ten typically refer to secular or sacred? So it might give you a clue. This is the first clue that maybe the heads are referring to something that is more spiritual in nature or religious in nature, where the horns are referring to something more secular in nature. Seven relates to worship on the seventh day, to completion. Ten is a temporal number, worldwide ten toes, and so forth. Uh, In Revelation 13, one of the heads... In Revelation 13, all of the heads have a blasphemous name. The horns don't have blasphemous names in Revelation 13. The heads do. What is blasphemy? Opposing God or misrepresenting God in some way while you're claiming to represent him. So again, the heads, seven spiritual, blasphemy is a spiritual issue. Suggesting Now one of the heads was wounded. And we won't go into the, all the multiple elements to identify what that head was. That will come later in the, in the book of Revelation. But what is that one head symbolic or representative that was wounded and the wound was healed? The papal system. When Berthier entered uh, Rome and took the Pope captive in 1798, okay, and they lost their, you know, their status and power, and there was no papacy until um, um, Mussolini reestablished it during uh, about the time of World War II. So, if one of those heads is a religious system, and they all have blasphemy on their name, and there are seven of them with the spiritual dome. Could we, could we move in the direction, maybe the heads represent religious systems. Or the perfection of a religious system against God. Seven being completion, you know, this is a, the complete antichrist. Perhaps, perhaps. So you would say all the heads are the same religious system. Right. I'm going to move in a different direction and say that the seven heads are seven different worldwide religious systems that all misrepresent God. If you look in Revelation 17, the seven heads, it says in Revelation 17, are also seven hills. Classic interpretation that the seven hills represent Rome. But, but what in Scripture, over and over again, does a hill represent? Over and over again, I've got a bunch of texts in here. I'm not going to read them all to you. Hills are places of worship. They built their altars up on the hills. Well, God called Mount Zion my holy hill. But they did, when, in Psalms, when he says, I, um, what, whence cometh my deliverance? Uh, my, put my eyes to the hills. 
that was actually not a reference to Zion. That was a reference, we don't look to the hills where the pagan idols and altars are. We look to Zion. We don't look, our eyes don't lift up to the hills. That's pagan. The implied answer to that question in Zion was no. Right, exactly. We don't look there. Because the hills in Scripture are representative of places of worship. We have seven heads that are seven hills, seven places of worship. And the seven hills are seven kings. Kings that give direction and structure and authority and rule and so forth. So I'm going to suggest that, in fact, the seven heads are representative. Oh, and by the way, in Revelation, it also gives you another clue. At the time of this, that, that, that um, John is writing, it's 95 AD, and, the, and it tells you that as he's writing, the angel says to him, five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. Of these seven heads, which are seven hills, which are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, one is yet to come, and then there's an eighth. Yeah. But the eighth is not part of it. The eighth, eighth is a completely different work. Okay? So of these seven... At 95 AD, five have already fallen. Now, fallen doesn't mean don't exist. Fallen can mean fallen from esteem, fallen from recognition, fallen from its place of uh, uh, of alleged accuracy or truthfulness, fallen into corruption. Right? All right. Adam fell from grace, but he was still alive. Okay. So what are they then? What are these? I'm going to suggest that the heads represent the seven worldwide systems that dominate people, that are high points of worship, that look up to. And and in John's day, five of them have already proven to be fallen, corrupted. One of them was existing right then. And one would come, and that last one is just for a short time, it says. And they are paganism, slash heathenism, that same different word, atheism, Eastern mysticism, Judaism, which had rejected Christ and had fallen, Islam, which even though Muhammad didn't officially establish it as a system until the 6th century AD, the Islamic people trace back the origins of their religion to the 12 sons of Ishmael from Abraham, who was the child of promise in their view, and um, Muhammad was simply the last prophet of that religion that was already in existence by the time uh, the, of AD 35, uh, 95. So Islam, those are the five, already fallen. One is, and one is was the new Christian church that John was the founding member of, but is also going to fall, become Roman, the Roman system, the papal system that falls into corruption. And one is yet to come. But it will only be for a short time. And in the history of the earth, that one the less to come is Protestant Christianity, which came along just 500 years ago. And then the landscape of the human history, it's a very short time in, in human history, just a short time near the end. And it's also fallen into the, pay, the, the penal, legal, imperialistic system with a corrupt God who is the source of pain, who must torture you and you must be protected from. If this is true, let's see, just see if the fit pieces fit. Again, you can disagree, it's okay. We don't have to know all these things. I'll give you something to think about. See if it fits history. See if it fits the pieces. Think, of it, think about the Battle of Armageddon when it comes. And there's going to be, a we believe, a beastly system, right? Do you think that beastly system only affects Europe and the United States? Or is it a worldwide system? Okay, this is a worldwide system. A system with all the religions of the world that cooperate together with the ten horns, which are the governments of the world, to form a coercive system at the end of time. But... But if you look again, the crowns now, look at the crowns. The dragon has the crowns on the heads, where the beast has the crowns on the horns. But there's ten horns and seven Ten horns. And the horns represent ten, like the ten toes, governments of the world. So, why, what is Satan's primary goal, his primary goal, in rulership? What does he want to achieve in rulership? This is not a mystery. He wants what? Praise for himself. Worship. He wants worship. 
He wants to rule through being recognized as a deity, as God that we worship. That's his primary goal. And so the dragon, which represents Satan, has the crowns on the heads, which represents the systems of worship, because that's where Satan wants to derive his power from, from false worship. The beast, on the other hand, the leaders of all these false religious systems of the world, none of those leaders in those human organizations claim that they are God and that they should be worshipped. Instead, they promote their power through legislation, Sharia laws, what the papacy did with the governmental laws, in other words, to coerce people to worship the God that they claim to serve. So their power comes through the state to coerce people in a distorted view of God in some way. That's why the crowns are on the horns. Now, it's very interesting. Well, symbols that is uniting. Uh, they eventually unite, right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, out of, of secular governments and Satan's government. You quote, church and state uniting. So are you with me so far? Crowns on the horns, power through worship, claiming to be a deity, wanting people to obey you because you're God. Crown, that's crowns on the heads. Crowns on the heads. Crowns on the horns, we're not claiming to be God. We're his agents. We're, we worship him. We serve him. And, and therefore, we use the power of the state to enforce the religious laws that we believe need to be enforced, to force people to worship this God in some way, we'll burn people to stake who disagree with us and so forth. This is the crowns on the horns. Now, interesting, if you read in the last uh, paragraph in the lesson on Sunday, uh, Ellen White says the following. Thus, the dragon primarily represents Satan. It is, in a secondary sense, a symbol of pagan Rome. Now, if I'm right, can you explain that with, the, with what I just said about power of the dragon coming primarily through being worshipped as God rather than the power of the state? How can that be true? What happened to the Caesars? Didn't they eventually claim to be God, to be deities, that they deserved worship? And so they eventually did not take the papal position. We're not God. The Pope never claims to be God. He's God's vice, vice regent. He's God's agent on earth, God's spokesman. But he's not God. They never claim that. But the Caesars did claim to be gods. And so they began to try and derive power, not just from the power of their armies, but from the power of the fact they should be worshipped. And thus, in a secondary sense, it's pagan Rome. I thought that was interesting. Monday's lesson, Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. What kind of war is this? You guys get this so quickly, but do you know most Christians really, I think, stumble here. They hear the word war, and they start thinking, you know, flaming swords, uh, lightsabers, uh, you know, nuclear weapons, uh, some type of physical altercation. But you get it because this class. But think that through. God is creator. Can any created being actually have a physical war with him? No, if this is a physical war, it's just like, eh, you're gone. Eh, you're gone. Like this. This is never a physical war. We have to teach people. In fact, the word translated war in the uh, Revelation is polemo, from where we get the, uh, the uh, English word polemic. It's a war of words. It's a war of ideas. Satan is the father of lies. He wars by infecting our minds and the minds of intelligent beings with falsehood in order to divert their loyalty, their trust, their love, their affection away from God where it is supposed to be toward him. This is what the war is about. And notice he was cast to the earth. War in heaven. Michael and just fought. The Ragnarok fought back. They weren't strong enough. They were cast to the earth. Hurled to the earth. Cast to the earth. With his angels with him. Question, when? When in universal history, in the timeline of events, big events, war, sometime in history, earth was made, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Adam, humankind was made. Uh, then, then Adam fell, and then the, you know, Christ became incarnate. There's, there's a trajectory in general terms. I'm not giving, asking you to give me a you know, date on some cosmic time clock. But, but in the trajectory of human events, where was, when, when was he cast to earth? One view, and the lesson takes the view, he was cast to earth after the cross. I'm kind of asking you a little bit of a trick question. Creation. 
because I think there were two casting outs. So I'm asking you a little bit of a trick question. Here's Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17. Casting him to the earth. War in heaven. There was war in heaven in Revelation. And he was cast to the earth. Here's what Ezekiel says. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. When does Ezekiel place this throwing to the earth? When he was corrupted. So was the earth even here then? Was the earth even here then? Ah, good question. So the two views, he was, he was cast out at the opening of the great controversy in heaven. Second view is cast out at the cross. Was there another comment somewhere? Yes. If he's cast to the earth, the earth has to be here already. So it has to be at the same time or just after the creation. Ah, we'll see. We'll see. That's a good one. Okay. All right. All right. Hold on. Hold on. What? 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 Where were the waters? Okay. The Holy Spirit. Lived on the water. Where were the waters? It was without form of void. But it was here. Something was here. Right. <laughs> Something was here called Earth. But in Genesis 1 1, before God began creating, what's the description of whatever was here? Dark, void. It was dark, void, and without form. Now, if you look in the cosmos and you find something dark, void, and without form, today we call that a. Black hole. A black hole. That's what we call it. Dark, void, and without form. That's a black hole. So one position is the universe was created sometime eons ago, and, and this is why it's billions of years old. Sometime in universal history, there was a war in the intelligences of the type of beings called angels that we call angels, and they rebelled. And at that point in time, God, through Satan and his angels to a place in the universe, a little corner of the Milky Way, called Earth by us. But at that point in time, it was a black void, bottomless pit, an abyss is what it says, without light and without form. Now, why would he do that? Is this punishment? What's the war about in heaven? Was he punishing him? Ah, I win. <laughs> You're out of here. Was this punishment? Or is this, how does, what are God's methods? Demonstration. A demonstration of what? What, what? what was the war about in heaven? Character. Character of God? Okay. So how does Lucifer get intelligent, sinless beings in heaven to rebel? Does he go, look at all the gold in the streets here. Let's sell it in the black market. <laughs> does he set up a prostitution ring or a drug ring in heaven? No. How does he get them to distrust God? Okay, he alleges he alleges that he and Christ are equal. Why would he allege that? Okay, so it says in First Timothy six sixteen that God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. Unapproachable by whom? Oh, so angels can approach it. Really? Really? Think it through. <laughs> Unapproachable light, symbolic of what's the light symbolic of? Uh, photons, or is light symbolic of truth, knowledge, and maybe love too? So, God is a finite being or an infinite being? Okay, and what's the concept of infinity actually mean? Without limits, is Lucifer and any angel and human beings are we finite or infinite beings? So he lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable. I'm going to suggest an infinite being cannot be approached by a finite being. Because we cannot process infinity. We don't have capacity to assimilate all infinity. It would consume us. It's too much for us. We can't exist there. It's beyond our capacity. We can't comprehend, think, work. We would be frozen and static. Well, how lonely he must be. To try you and God, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but he's a God of love. If an infinite being loves his creation, does he want to be distant from them or close to them? Close to them. But if we can't, so first Timothy 6, he lives in unapproachable light. We can't approach it. So if we can't approach his infinity, but he wants intimacy with us, what will have to happen? Ah, a member of infinity must leave infinity and enter linear existence to have close communion. That member of the Godhead that left infinity and manifested in a physical form to, in, in a linear timeline was Jesus, always was Jesus. He's always the bridge builder, the go-between, the mediator, the connecting link. It's always been Jesus. 
So he leaves infinity, and he, now, in the universal history past, where they have no sin, and we have angels there, what form might he appear in? Do we have biblical evidence that that's what he did? Okay, uh, Michael the archangel, and we're not speaking of the Jehovah's Witness view that Michael uh, was Jesus who was a created being. That, that's not true. But do we have, we have evidence to support that, in fact, Michael was, the, was in fact, Jesus? Is there biblical evidence? Put the pieces together. The voice of the archangel is one that raises the dead. The voice of the archangel is one that raises the dead? And? Jesus said, those who hear my voice, the dead will come to life. So Jesus said, it's his voice that will raise the dead. And the voice of the archangel in Thessalonians. So he put those two pieces together. But that doesn't yet tell us it's Michael, though. When he comes back, it'll be... Uh, who raised... Yeah, and who raised... Uh, Moses from the dead. Wasn't it Michael? He argued it with the body. Yes, it was Michael who raised. So here we have Michael actually raising and uh, telling. But there's, there's other evidence. When Moses talked to God at the bush, Exodus chapter 3, read the account. The, the bush is on fire and it's burning. And it says, the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from within the bush and said, I am the Lord your God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's the angel of the Lord. You see the same thing in Acts. When Stephen gives his testimony, he actually quotes that. And so the New Testament endorses it's the angel of the Lord who is actually God. You see the same thing when the angel of the Lord comes to speak to Samson's parents. And, uh, and it says that he is God. So we have strong biblical evidence that a member of the Godhead manifested, pre- presented himself in the form of an angel. And that angel was an archangel. And Peter then gives us another clue when he talks about Jesus translated in English that Jesus is the bright morning star or the day star. And the Greek there is phosphorus, translated bright star or morning star, which in the Latin is translated to Lucifer. Jesus is the Lucifer. You uncomfortable with Jesus being Lucifer? Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the Latin Lucifer means light bearer, bright one. I still don't like it. <laughs> and Jesus, of course, in John, is the light which lightens all men. He is the light of it. And Lucifer, the created being who became Satan, was created to be a light bearer. And of the created beings, he was the one who could get closest to the infinite God and had the greatest knowledge and light about the God. So he was one to bear light to the rest of creation, but he still was a created being and he only goes so far. Whereas Michael, the, the infinite one, the God who just left infinity and stepped into linear existence and in, interacted on a, a, a personal plane, would go into the councils, would step back into infinity. And at some point, Lucifer looks at himself and goes, I'm amazing, I'm splendid, I'm awesome, I'm a light bearer, I want to go there too. It's not fair, we're the same. Why is it that Michael gets to go in these councils and I don't get to go in these councils? God just picks him arbitrarily, set up a rule that I'm not allowed to go. That's why, it's a rule. It's not, it's not design law. There's no inherent reason, it's just a rule. He's arbitrary, sets rules, punishes you, break them. Now wait a minute, are you saying that God does not interact with the angels and stuff. Christ does, but God doesn't. So God's sitting up there alone, and Christ does all the interacting, comes back and reports to the Father what's going on? Or what? I'm saying there's no evidence that God the Father ever manifested himself in the form of his creation. That Jesus is the one who manifests in the form of his creation. And, and, and God is there in some manner the Shekinah glory or whatever you want to call it, but that's a representation of him that we cannot enter into. But can the angels interact with God, him being infinite? Oh, I think we're going to talk to God. We have indication from Scripture that Jesus is going to introduce us to God, but the God we are introduced to in some way is shielded in some way. It's not infinity we're introduced to. We don't enter in infinity. We'll meet God. I believe that's true, the Father. Well, when you say enter infinity, just because we meet somebody doesn't mean that we're going to become what they are. That's right. You've got me on that stuff. <laughs> think it through so the point is we're, we're trying to process this idea um, when was he cast to the earth and why if you understand this dynamic and what was confusing the angels in heaven it was the allegation that God's unfair because he prefers Michael over, over um, Lucifer and I gave you some basis as to why that argument was able to even go forward uh, let, let, let's move on <laughs> go ahead well, I thought that was only when God and Christ were talking about creating the earth that Satan wasn't allowed in on that conversation and stuff. 
that's, I wouldn't argue that that was part of the conversation he wasn't invited into. I don't think that was the exclusive aspects of it. He wanted Christ's position. He wanted to be worshipped as Christ. That's what he wanted. He was jealous of Christ's position in heaven, and, and he wanted to usurp Christ as the one adored and worshipped. Anyway, one of the many threads you'll see running throughout earthly pagan worship is that there's a, there's a deity who has two sons and prefers one son over the other and casts one out and, and gives the other one preference throughout Babylonian, Egyptian, uh, Grecian paganism. Yep. So casting out, and I'm going to suggest to you that casting out happened before the earth was terraformed and life was put here. There was a black hole there called Earth, okay? Why? Well, and here's a, here's a quote from Ellen White out of the book Confrontation, page 18. Angels on probation have been deceived by Satan and had been led on by him in the great rebellion in heaven against Christ. They failed to endure the test brought to bear upon them, and they fell. Adam was then created in the image of God. So in this timeline, she's putting the creation of humankind after the fall in heaven, after Lucifer's rebellion. So, so th- that's where it fits in. So if this is correct, you can reject it, but if it's correct, then the timeline goes like this. Satan began a war of words, undermining God's character in heaven before the creation or the terraforming of planet Earth. One of the allegations was he was equal to Jesus. We're the same. It's not fair. Jesus can go and have these councils, planet Earth and other stuff. I don't get get in on that. By the way, why was Lucifer not invited into those councils? Because he had nothing to add. See, this is part of the purpose of the creation of Earth and Adam and Eve to represent the Godhead. And after Adam and Eve's on Earth and they're ruling in, in uh, the position, and this Earth is a microcosm of the whole universe, did, when Adam and Eve planned anything, did they invite the giraffes <laughs> or the dogs or the hyenas or the lions into the councils? Because they were selfish? Because they were exclusionary? Because they didn't care about them? Why wouldn't they invite them in? <laughs> there you go. And which do you think is the bigger gap? The gap between a man and a giraffe or the gap between a man and our God? Which is the bigger gap? It really is. Okay? And so this is why he wasn't invited in. Not because God was exclusionary or selfish. He couldn't comprehend or even process any more than the animals can process what we're talking about. Okay, moving on with this. So Satan alleges equality with Christ, and God is unfair and arbitrary in setting rules. Might Jesus and God give Satan an opportunity to prove his claims of equality with Christ? Okay, you claim to be equality with with Christ. Go down here. This is our palette. This is our landscape. You get to go first. You claim equality with Christ. Show the universe you're equal. Do something with it. He's cast out. Just a great big experiment. Oh, we're not an experiment. Oh, no. They were already planning our creation beforehand. We were already in the plan. It was happening. Lucifer's rebellion happened, I think, partly what you said, because it wasn't included in the plan. So we weren't an afterthought. We were the culmination of the creation of the entire universe. So he's creating all over the universe. He's got a plan, just like when you build a house, you deal here, and you build, and this comes next, and this comes next. He's building his universe, building out his creation, building out other intelligences. And the last piece was the creation of humankind. It was already in the plan. But Lucifer rebels beforehand, and so God says, okay, we got one, one, one uh, place left we're going to terraform, make a new creation, make a new intelligence. It's a big old black hole. It's a, an abyss. Nothing's there. You go there. Show the universe what you can do with it. And what does he show? Nothing. He didn't do anything. And then Christ comes along after some who knows how long, and Christ says, let there be light. The black hole dissipates. Light from all the rest of the universe travels around. Around, We can see light here now. The black hole's gone. Whatever was in the center of the black hole, whatever that matter and mass was that God created at some time in billions of years past when he created the whole cosmos, that's why on Earth today, when they do um, radio dating of rock, which is not living material, it dates to billions of years because it was created by God at the beginning of the universe and sat out here waiting for God to come do something with it. And he dissipated the black hole, takes that matter, and he creates a solar system. This solar system was created. Sun, moon, and stars on day, and day four. Stars, Ver- Mercury, Venus, Mars, the stars of the solar system. And the angels are watching. Lucifer couldn't do anything. Look what, look what Michael, look what Jesus is. Wow, what do you think he's going to do tomorrow? And on day six, let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost come into unity and create... 
Now we have this new intelligence, equal but different, coming into unity of love, giving of themselves in love, and creating new beings in their image. Very godly. Man, woman, and God together, a triune perfection of love. This is God's design. And they were to be fruitful and multiply in the world for sin, and they were to reveal as they governed the entire planet, running on God's principles. Not only did Jesus just show that he's different than Lucifer, and Lucifer is not God, Jesus just also showed by this world teeming with life, everything running on the law of love, all the circles of giving built into all of nature, the whole thing, circle in a circle, wheel in a wheel, showing God's kingdom in operation that life is built upon. It's an amazing radiating lesson coming from the hand of God, and that, that, that particular member was Jesus because the lies were alleged that there was an equality between the two of them. Now, reading the first paragraph, it says, Satan was cast out of heaven. So this is the first casting out in my view. There's going to be another one. Satan was cast out of heaven at the beginning of the great controversy when he rebelled against God's government. He wanted to seize God's throne in heaven and be like the Most High. He stood in open revolt against God, but, he, but was defeated and exiled on earth. However, by deceiving Adam and Eve, Satan usurped Adam's rule over this world. As the self-proclaimed ruler of this world, Satan claimed the right to attend heaven's councils as earth's representative. However, since his defeat at the cross, Satan and his fallen angels have been confined to the earth as a prison until they receive their punishment. So Satan has cast the earth at the beginning of the rebellion in heaven, and he is unable to create, but he has a front row seat as Jesus creates. But after the creation of humanity in Adam's fall, is Satan restricted to the earth, or is he able to travel to heaven? heaven. First chapter of Job reveals that very clearly, that he's traveling to heaven. What about today? Is he able to travel to heaven, or is he restricted here? And what happened to change this and cause him to be restricted here now? Is there a force shield bubble around earth every time they go, can't get off the earth? His character was revealed. So Jesus said in John 12, 31 and 32, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all, and in all the Bible translations, they insert a word, all men, to myself. The word men is not in the Greek, it's inserted. It should be read, I will draw all unto myself. So, prince of the world, of course, and this is Satan. From where is he being driven out when Christ is lifted up? This is the second casting out or driving out or hurling out. It's here. First one, the hearts, minds, and affections of all who embrace the truth about Jesus. Not all intelligent beings, all who embrace the truth. Yeah, I, I knew you meant that. I knew you meant that. Um, Colossians 1.20, that by Christ through Christ's death, he died to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Satan was cast out of heaven at the beginning of the year controversy in order to demonstrate his claims, which he failed to do. In order Christ to demonstrate he's a creator, which he did, in creating a microcosm of, of his kingdom with a new creation that governs in love. It's God governs his universe in love. And then after Adam's fall, Christ becomes the second Adam and casts out Satan by uh, the revelation of truth. And so the second paragraph in the lesson reads... By his death, Jesus redeemed what was lost, and Satan's true character was revealed before the universe. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away, his administration laid open before the unfallen angels, before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Before the whole universe, the rule, before the whole universe, the rule over the earth was transferred from Satan to Jesus, and he was proclaimed the legitimate ruler over the earth. Okay, that last, that, there was a quote in the middle there from Ellen White, and then, the, and then that last sentence or two there was from the authors of the lesson. Let's, let's talk about this first. Why was Satan's movements restricted? You've already said it. That thing confirms it. Nobody else wanted to talk to him. Because no other being in the universe, now he had been proven in their minds to be a liar, he had been proven to be the source of evil, he uh, had been proven to be righteous, and God's methods had been proven to be, so there was no doubt in all the intelligences out, outside planet Earth there is no intelligent being anywhere else in the universe that will listen to him. Talk to the hand, not listen. Okay? So he's restricted because only on planet Earth now are there people and beings who listen and accept and promote and promulgate his lies. That's why he's restricted here. This is his playground now. Yes? 
as a small illustration, there have been despots who have cruelly ruled their kingdoms and who have been ousted. And they have a difficult time finding places to go because no one will accept them. (laughs) This is very similar to what's happened to Satan on a global scene. And so this restriction to earth, is this restriction to earth an action of arbitrary imperial law or the result of design law? See, the restriction is design law. Truth has settled the rest, and nobody, God has not used his power other than the power of truth and love. Power of truth and love, but not physical might and power is not used to restrict him here. It's very profound. And people, the beings in the universe, have used their freedom to make a decision. That's right. Based on the evidence. And so the angels saw the truth, made a decision. So do the human beings need the same truth? Yes, but we need something more than the angels needed. Yes. We need the truth, but we also need a new nature, new heart, new character. And so Christ not only came to reveal the truth, that's moral influence theory, but he did more than that. He came to procure a perfect human nature, perfect human character. Through the action of his human will, he developed it and eradicated that infection at the cross of fear and selfishness. He eradicated it and established a new humanity. He comes the second Adam, the new head of humanity, and we can all partake of his free gift to us. And that's why it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, although he's a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. He was always sinless. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. Character cannot be created. Every intelligent being develops their character by the choices they make in response to the truth and or lies that are presented to them. And so Christ came as a human being and developed a perfect character. Uh, So he was always sinless, but his perfection was achieved. And Ellen White puts it this way, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. This, these he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through, this is profound, a legal payment, no, through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. And notice what justifying is. There's nothing legal going on here. Justifying is, is setting your heart right and pure and holy again through the achievements of Christ. That's justification. So what about the idea in the paragraph that said this? And I'm trying to move fast because we're, man, there's a couple really important things in Revelation that we want to get to, and we're already like five minutes left in the lesson. Um, I have to run over again. I may have to. Uh, In the lesson, it says, uh, before the whole universe, the rule of earth was transferred from Satan to Jesus at the cross. He was proclaimed to be the legitimate ruler over earth. Does this mean that Satan, previous to this, Satan was a legitimate ruler, and at the cross, by Christ's death, he becomes the legitimate ruler. Is that what that means? It was transferred to him. The legitimate rule was transferred. Or does it mean that Jesus was always the legitimate ruler, even before the cross, but because of the lies of Satan, many intelligences didn't recognize that reality, and at the cross that recognition of that truth took place. And so in the minds of intelligent beings, they transferred in their understanding the, um, the um, legitimate rulership from Satan to Christ, but it was always Christ all along anyway. That's, that's an important distinction. Did you get that clarity the way it was read? That's why I'm emphasizing this. Don't be duped into this idea that Satan never had any legitimate authority on earth. It was always illegitimate. Ellen White puts it this way in Zara of Ages 129. When Satan declared to Christ in the temptation, uh, the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it, he stated what was true only in part. 
And he declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. Satan's dominion was that rested from Adam. But Adam was the vice, re, vice gerent of the creator. He, his was not an independent rule. The earth is God's and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hand, Christ still remained the rightful king. Thus the Lord, thus the Lord said to King Nebuchadnezzar, quote, from Daniel 4.17, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men, gives it to whomever he will. Tuesday's lesson, Revelation 12, 13, and 14. Uh, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to a male child. The woman was given two wings of, of the great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. So let's go through this really quick because I've got a couple important things, but I want to get to the remnant. I really want to get to the remnant. Um, who is the dragon? That's Satan. He's hurled to the earth. Who is the woman that gave birth? That's the church. The male child is Christ. The wings represent speed or ability to flee. Uh, they flee to the desert. What does, what does that represent? Well, Revelation seventeen fifteen uh, says that the waters where the prostitutes sit are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So if waters symbolically represent populated places, then a desert is a place without waters. And we use that kind of, te- boy, that's a sea of people out there. Okay, we kind of use that metaphor still today. <laughs> So the desert would represent unpopulated places. And so basically it's saying there'll be uh, uh, places where there's not as density of people for the righteous to flee as Satan is trying to destroy the church. Third paragraph. The period of Satan's persecution is mentioned twice in Revelation uh, 12 in terms of 1260 days, years, a time, time, and half a times. Both the, both time periods refer to the duration of the little horn's persecuting activity mentioned in Daniel 7, uh, 23 through 25. In the Bible, prophetic days symbolize years. The time in history that fits this prophetic period is 538 AD to 1798, which is the time of the papal, um, church persecutions, state power dominating, um, Western world and ending with Napoleon General's Berthier. Um, who uh, entered Rome and took the Pope captive. And I'm not going to go through. It's going to be in the notes. I'm going to skip the whole where you get the a-, a day for a year and all that stuff and move on to um, to where to where I want to go with the... Uh... Yeah, I'm going to have to move on. Let's go to Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson, twelve uh, seventeen. Then the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What does this mean? Dragon against Satan? Who's the woman? It's the church or the people of God, those loyal to him. What kind of war? He's making war. Is it primarily a physical war or is it primarily spiritual war? Attacking their minds. Spiritual war, primarily. Who are the rest of her offspring? Well, those are sometimes referred to as the remnant, right? They are identified with two identifiers. Obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let's examine those. What does it mean to obey the commandments? It's really very simple. Live in harmony with God's design laws. The law of love, the law of liberty, the law of truth. See, if you love others, then if you love God with all your heart, that's the first four of the ten. If you love others, that's the last four. So it's really having a heart that now operates on the principles of love, other-centeredness. That's living in harmony with the commandments. The only ones who can do this are those who've had their hearts changed such that they do not love their life so much as to shrink from death, Revelation twelve eleven. The only ones who can do it. Uh, consider for a moment, uh, I've got some examples of applying that. We don't have time to apply that principle and what it would look like in action because we're running late. Well, maybe I should say a couple of these then. Uh, uh, what's the righteous look like? Those who would be part of that group. They're brought before a council and told that when the music plays, they must bow to a golden idol or be thrown in a fiery furnace. How do the righteous respond? That won't bow. That's an easy one, guys. That was that was that was a, a fluff question for you guys. I knew you'd get it. Okay. Uh, how about they are told that if they work on a certain day of the week, they will be imprisoned, say Friday or Sunday. If you work on Friday or Sunday, you're going to be imprisoned. How do the righteous respond? Long weekend. Long weekend. That's right. There's nothing in scripture that says you, you you have to work on those days. State can tell, state can make, in fact, there are federal holidays now that we say, oh, everything's closed on these days and we close businesses on these days. There's no evil in that. So you go ahead with that. Uh, but some people are conditioned. No, if the state says it, well, then I have to rebel against it. So I'm going to go out there and make sure everybody sees me working twice as hard on that day. What if you're told they must attend worship services on Sabbath, Saturday the Sabbath, and shut down all their businesses or be imprisoned? 
How about if we say we, everybody must be baptized into Jesus Christ or be imprisoned? You say, what I'm, what I'm trying to show you is, violations of God's law are the methods used. And you can do a biblical truth with Satan's methods of coercion and force, and you're violating God's law. That's the point I wanted you to say. Okay, God's laws are designed laws, presenting truth in love, leaving others free. Any religious laws that are matters of conscience in which we enforce and coerce people, this is part of the beastly system. No one can buy or sell. Coercion, economic sanctions, unless you do what we say. The lesson says the main issue at the end of time is one of worship. Is it really primarily about forms of worship? Is that what you think it's about? Which day you go to church on, how you're baptized, how you take communion, or the God whom you're worshiping? Are you worshiping a God who Jesus revealed, or are you worshiping an imperial dictator? So, and let's read the last paragraph. It says, also the end time remnant, second characteristic is that they have the testimony of Jesus, which Revelation 19 says explains is the spirit of prophecy. But comparing this verse with Revelation 22.9, we see that John's brethren who have the testimony of Jesus are prophets. Therefore, the testimony of Jesus refers to Jesus testifying to the truth through his prophets, just as he did through John. Revelation shows that at the end of time, uh, God's people will have the spirit of prophecy in their midst to guide them through those difficult times as Satan will try to make every effort to deceive and destroy them. As Adventists, we have been given the gift of prophetic insight in the ministries and writings of Ellen White. Okay, guys. Let's just assume for a moment, and we won't argue, there's a lot of argument and debate, was she a prophet, was she not a prophet? And just assume for a moment she was. Just make the assumption. She, was, she had the gift of prophecy. That would mean that within the Adventist organization, we have the writings of a dead prophet. If, if she were, right? We agree with that? Yes. What is the Bible? Living word. But they're the writings of dead prophets. So anybody who professes the Bible and follows it also have the writings of dead prophets. Because we have writings of a dead prophet, does that mean we have a prophet living among us to guide us? As the lesson suggested, that these people will have a prophet among them to guide them. We don't have one, guys. Even if she did have the gift, it's the writings of a dead prophet. I'm going to suggest it doesn't mean that at all. Do the remnant have something more than the writings of a dead prophet? The NIV says in this text, they hold to the testimony of Jesus rather than they have the testimony of Jesus. They hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you read in um, other versions, uh, the, in Revelation 19.10, it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's NIV. Here's the good news. For the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. That's what the testimony of Jesus is, the, the, the truth that inspired them. Or the um, New Century Version says, Worship God because the message about Jesus is the spirit that gives all prophecy. Hmm. So one view is that the remnant are those who obey all ten commandments, including the Sabbath commandment, and have a historical person who is now deceased who possessed the gift of prophecy. Thus the organization, the institution, becomes the remnant. Another view is that the remnant are those who live in harmony with God's design law in their lives, have the law written on their hearts and minds, give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave and all the prophets gave, because the truth of God is what inspires them and inspired the prophets. Thus, the group becomes the spokespersons for God, described in Revelation 7, represented by the 144,000 as the servants of God who are sealed, and the servants of God in Scripture are his prophets. Thus, the remnant group will have amongst them members of the 144,000 who have been so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, they cannot be moved, and they give the same testimony in their words, in their deeds, in the way they live about God that Jesus gave, and they live in harmony with God's design law, and they are living witnesses at the end of time to which the great multitude respond and are saved. Amen. You got it. <laughs> Now let me ask you in closing, could there be a people who obey the Sabbath commandment, who are members of an institutional church that has a deceased prophet in that institution, yet those individual people do not love others, do not, have not been reborn, and are not like Jesus in character? There already has been. <laughs> well, but, but I'm talking today. Yes, absolutely. Okay, but yet they claim they're part of the remnant because they're part of the institution. Okay, I want you to break free from this idea of institutional loyalty and identity. It makes you part of the remnant. 
It's character transformation, being like Christ, giving the testimony about God that Jesus gave, living in harmony with design laws. Now, have I just attacked any institution? I have not attacked an institution. I have not diminished an institution. I have merely focused the reality of God's plan of salvation to where it's always been, healing the hearts and minds of people to be like Jesus. That's what it's always been. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for the truth that you revealed through Christ. Thank you so much for the writings that we find in Scripture. And I personally am thankful for the writings of Ellen White, who has given us such great insights into so many of these things. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to enlighten each of our minds. Transform us to be like you in character. Enable us to be your end-time witnesses, your servants, your spokespersons, who can take a true message about your kingdom into this world right here, right now, today. Manifest yourself among us. Pour your spirit upon us so that the world will be lighted. And you'll come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.